This is a story of a pandemic overcome with beautiful patience. What is Camp Sunna? For the last 15 years, Camp Sunna has been North America's most impactful leadership development retreat for tomorrow's Muslim leaders and young professionals. The Ummah's most valuable resource is sincere people. Camp Sunna provides these future leaders the opportunity to network, live, and be inspired by the Sunna in pragmatic ways. The result is lasting change in Camp Sunna's attendees to solve the increasing challenges, division, and chaos plaguing the Ummah today. Camp Sunna is an annual $40,000 investment in Canadian Muslim communities and is open to both men and women. In reaching its 15th year anniversary, Camp Sunna has had one goal in mind during that time, the upliftment of the Ummah of Rasulullah wasallam. Camp Sunna creates a rare environment that develops its attendees through a clear methodology of manners, knowledge, and action under the umbrella of brotherhood and sisterhood. These relationships leave attendees transformed in character, which as we know the Prophet ﷺ was sent to perfect. After 14 years of maintaining North America's premier leadership development retreat, investing hundreds of thousands of dollars in over 500 graduates from across Canada, and having overcome all the challenges imaginable over the years, the unimaginable happened. Camp Sunna was faced with a global pandemic that was shutting down the whole world. It was locking down entire continents, closing masajids, and forcing people to self-isolate. Months into the pandemic, Western Canadian Muslim communities continued to contend with changing public health regulations of three provinces with restrictions on travel and limited gathering size. With an increasing number of cases and huge financial uncertainty, there was a serious consideration to completely cancel Camp Sunna for this year. However, the thought of missing one year and failing to move forward towards our goal was something difficult for the team to accept. Collectively, Every volunteer involved in the Camp Sunna program realized that real leaders need to always keep pushing and striving for the Ummah. Working together, we persevered, planned, and prayed. With a consultation from health professionals, a cautious and safety-focused plan that respected public health guidelines was developed. And with barely a few weeks left, Camp Sunna 2020 was finally ready to go. All the obstacles we faced gave rise to this year's theme, Move the Rock, a pandemic overcome by beautiful patience. And in Camp Sunna's opening ceremony, Dr. Saeed explained what this meant. And this year is obviously very special, Camp. Uh, there's uh, a completely different set of circumstances. If this Camp Sunna beat the heck out of your nafs, our condition as an Ummah today is that there are many people doing khair. There are many people doing da'wah. There are many people doing Islamic work. But as an Ummah or even communities, why haven't we made a lot of significant progress? Why are we constantly in survival mode? Oh man, we're going to lose our kids. Oh, we're going to lose our family. Oh, we're going to lose the masjid. We're always in crisis mode. We're always trying to just survive. You've just worn the special pandemic versions of the camps and the uh, shirts. What does this all mean? Okay, so there's a hadith narrated by Ibn Umar, this is uh, in Sahih Bukhari, where three people were walking and they were in the middle of a rainstorm, so they sought refuge into a cave. They went into this cave and a rock fell on the entrance of that cave and they were trapped inside of it. And so they said to each other, let's make dua to Allah through our good deeds so that Allah would help us to free us.
from this uh, trapped situation. This hadith, firstly, we look at it and we can just look at the virtue of, for example, honoring the parents. This was such a praiseworthy deed. We look at it from obviously saving yourself from zina. We look at it from upholding the amana of people. If we were to take a principle from all of these things, we see that they overcame their nafs for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, firstly, and then secondly, to benefit somebody else. To move the rock, there needs to be the accumulation of selfless deeds for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then these challenges that we face in the ummah will be achievable. We will be able to overcome them. Like if you can't conquer your nafs, you can't conquer anything else. So that they control the nafs, the selfish, lower, debased part of a human being for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One thing that we appreciate with this hadith is that for all three of them to escape, there needed to be the acceptance of all three of their deeds. So it took the accumulation of all three of them. There was synergy involved. So what does synergy mean? Synergy means that one plus one doesn't equal two, but one plus one can equal five. One plus one can equal 100. This is what synergy means. Why don't we have this synergy in this ummah? Because we're not united upon the khair. I want you to imagine the situation with the rock. It moved just enough, but not enough for any one person to escape. It took the collective dua and effort of all of them for them to be able to move the rock. One person's dua and effort can carry them all. What does that mean? That means as a collective, as an ummah, each and every person needs to step up if we're going to move the rock. Moving the rock means like uniting the ummah. How are we going to unite the ummah? Kemsunna has a very robust and clear approach in all of his programming, using in as the main component to develop our attendees and provide the tools they need to achieve their potential. Because we had a very clear vision, mission, and purpose. So what's the, we discussed what's the difference between purpose, mission, and vision. So the purpose is the existential reason that you have. So the reason why you exist. The purpose of a company, what's the purpose of this? Why does it exist? Oh, the purpose of our company is to fix pipes, for example. What's the purpose, okay? And then the mission could be, you know, we want to be the best at fi fixing pipes. And then the vision is that we're the, we become the number one company associated with fixing pipes. Your purpose is the reason why you exist. The mission is the connection, the force that drives you to your vision. Okay? So now as a Muslim, what's the purpose of why we exist? To worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What's the end goal that we have? What's the vision? Jannah. What's the mission? Islam. Right? Islam is an action. Submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's a force. That's the force that gets you to your vision of where you want to go to. See, that's the that's what most people, how they live, is they don't have a clear mission in life. Because they don't have a clear mission in life, you're easily operationalized for somebody else's mission. So for example, when you look at governments today, they have a mission on what they want to accomplish, right? Do they want their citizens to be amenable or are they welcoming their citizens to oppose them and criticize them? So for example, what is the underlying philosophy of Canadian society? Liberalism. Now liberalism has a mission. And how is it uh, accomplishing that mission? Through its institutions. And have they operationalized many of us to help accomplish this? 100%. Because you're taking on debt to go through their education system. 
You're spending time to go through their education system. You're invested in it. You're going through all the hoops. And then when you come out and get a job, you're giving half of your salary to uphold this whole system whose vision and mission is liberalism. Whose mission and vision we see in the schools, in what they're teaching in the schools, and how they're uh, trying to rear children. We see it in the health institutions. We see it in the financial institutions. So we are, we have all been operationalized to help fulfill this mission or this vision of the society. And I remember one of the brothers asked one of the imams, he's like, you know, Sheikh, like, you know, should I get involved in da'wah? Like, you know, what should I do in terms of like getting involved with the MSA and whatnot? So I, I remember this clearly. He says, you know what? Your main job while you're in university, your main job is just to get a good education. That's your main job. And then just to be a good citizen. That's all you have to do. So now, he actually doesn't have a clear mission. What he's telling him, that particular brother, is he's saying, just adopt, support somebody else's mission. So for example, Shaitan has a mission. I'm going to mislead them all. That's his mission in life. And he's operationalized many people to mislead them into hellfire. Except for those who are sincere. Meaning, those that have a clear, uncorrupted purpose that they're dedicated to. Those people who are sincere and have a clear mission in their life, he can't operationalize them for his mission. Every day, people are operationalized for somebody else's mission. I want to make a, a point about purpose as well. Now, your purpose and mission may not align. And... When that happens, that, calls, that causes imbalance and chaos. So for alignment, for ideal alignment, you should have that balance. Your purpose should be balanced with your mission. That's why for the kuffar, if they have like a very good mission in life, but they deny their purpose, there's going to be an imbalance. There's going to be a chaos. There's going to be friction there. I want you to think of this. Principles are constants based upon the truth. Values are what you prioritize. Okay? So, that's why it's very important to put all these pieces together. Your mission statement, your principles, your values. You have to understand, it, there needs to be a consistency here. Because your values and principles may not align. Why? Because principles are based on truth Values are based on you. Therefore, as Muslims, we should value principles. So for example, a principle is that we should love Allah and His Messenger above anything else. So that's based upon the truth. Quran and Sunnah. Now, your values, what you prioritize, can be different, right? What you value, you could value yourself more. What you value is what you prioritize. So, if we value principles, then there's going to be an alignment. Because then you will prioritize those principles over anything else. For example, say, I say my mission is to serve Islam. Dawah is a principle in Islam. And you look at your values you see that you prioritize making money. So even though you say your vision is Jannah, your actual vision or your actual end goal is money, houses, car, whatever. If we look at what you're prioritizing, that's where you're actually spending most of your efforts. That's actually truly what your mission is. So if we want to be able to decipher the integrity of our mission. You have to assess your principles and your values. And you have to see if those principles and values are linked, that there's a match, there's an alignment there. And your purpose as a human being, that's also immutable. You can say, I have a different purpose, 
but that does not change the fact of why you were created for. Okay? It's just you can change your mission in life. Now, does the vision that we have for our mission, so say for example, our vision is to serve Islam, to do da'wah. Does the vision of your mission mean that there won't be any problems associated with it? Is it a realistic vision? The only vision that is problem-free and stress-free is Jannah. Every other vision has pro like a challenge associated with it. A proper vision of what you're trying to accomplish understands that my mission is to serve Islam and the vision of that is that I see myself also dealing with challenges. I see myself dealing with rejection. I see myself dealing with slander. I see myself dealing with like, you know, fitna and corruption and munafiqeen. I see myself dealing with all of these different things. But because my mission is so strong, I have a vision of how I'm going to overcome all of these different challenges. Is it situational or is it permanent? Like, I'm talking about a core mission in your life. It's a permanent thing. It's not something that you try today and you'll quit tomorrow. Of course, you're going to be tested. That needs to be incorporated in an understanding of the mission. Because what ends up happening is people, they have a very superficial idea of what a mission is. I remember a post, right, that a brother in DC posted saying, I've given up on the community in Vancouver. I keep trying and I've given up on them. That means that was never a mission in his life. Because a mission in your life comes internally, comes in, intrinsically. It's not situational. It's not dependent upon external stimulus. It's based upon internal, internal fortitude. So, unfortunately, we have a romanticized idea of what a mission is. It's not something without any problems. But because you believe so hard in this mission, you do not give up. And that's why when Abu Talib went to Rasul and he's trying to convince him to give up his mission of da'wah, Rasul told his uncle to look at the sun. And he says, I am no more capable of giving up my mission than you are able to go to the sun and grab me a flame from the sun. The Messenger of Allah is giving a very clear idea, giving a very clear picture that he is on a mission. And nothing can stop him from that mission. Is Rasul supposed to be a guide for our deen? Is how we should understand the deen? Does the Sahaba عنهم, have a similar understanding? Umar bin al-Khattab he once visited Rasul in his home and he started crying. Because all that was in the home of the Messenger of Allah was a simple mattress. And Rasul was saying, why are you crying? He says, because I see the kings of Persia and the Romans, Qisra wa Qaisar, and they sit on thrones of gold and they wear silk. And you have just this simple, sitting on a simple mattress. And so Rasulullah said, Ya Umar, are you not satisfied that they have this world and we have the next? In every action, you can't look at any inconsistency in the mission of a Rasul. Look at his home. And again, is this only for the messenger? No, this is the understanding of the Sahaba. Like real talk, my dear brothers and sisters. We want these great things. We want unity. But your mission does not reflect unity. 100%. You ask any Muslim, do you want unity? Yes, we want unity. Are you willing to be on a mission to establish unity? Oh, of course. Do you know what that means? 
That means you have to continuously be insulted by your own community and still show love to them. That means you have to keep reaching out and you have to keep giving even though they give you nothing but headache. That means you give them nasiha. That means you give them dua. That means you put in work. Then you get unity. Your mission isn't like that though. Your mission is you blame. Okay, why didn't they do this for me? I did this for so and so. I'm tired of putting in all this work and I'm getting no results. That means you don't have a mission. Your mission does not reflect the end result that you want. So even the da'wah, we treat it like a hobby. If the principle is to call people to worship Allah in da'wah, that is then, and if your values reflect that, you prioritize that above everything else. Did the Sahaba's children go hungry because of their mission? The problem is, is in the decadent West, we want our cake and eat it too. If you really believe in the promise of Allah, you know those things come incidentally, not because you're seeking them. doesn't mean you don't work for it, but there will always be a fork in the road where you're going to have to choose. Serving the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or you're staying on your mission, or something else. You're, you're, uh, your family, your career, your education, something. Does that mean you neglect? So again, as a caveat, do we say that we neglect that? No, it does not mean that we, we don't neglect that. But I dare you to put in the same level. Are you going to put yourself into the same debt that you put in for your education, for the deen? Are you going to put yourself in the same number of hours? Real talk, the number of hours that you put in for studying for your courses, are you going to put that in for the da'wah? Are you going to put that in for uh, serving the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Are you going to stress? Are you going to worry about it? Are you going to make sure that there's a certain level of standard that's accomplished? Or are you just going to dial it in? As most of our da'wah is. It's just like checking off things on a list. I'm saying this to your brothers. Remember, beat up your ego because your ego is a shield right now. And your ego is trying to resist a lot of the things I'm saying. And the reason the generation of the Sahaba who were so successful, the reason for that is because they were able to overcome this. Ibn Mas'ud he says that to his students, you know you fast and you pray more than the Sahaba. He says that you, you do all these different acts of worship more than the Sahaba. And many of the Tabi'in knew more hadith than the Sahaba. He says, but the Sahaba were better than you. Why? Because they were more desirous of the Akhirah. They had their mission aligned right. They were truly headed for that vision. You say you want Jannah, but then what is the mission that you have in life? What has happened? We have all been operationalized to fulfill the mission of other people. This is why the Ummah is in the situation that it's in right now. But tell me, the Sahaba, their mission prioritized that. If they didn't do that, Islam would not have gone between the East and the West and in different nations all over the world. And set the seeds then for the uh, Umayyad and the Abbasid Khilafah and Dawlat al-Uthmaniyyah and uh, the Ayyubid and the Mamluk and all of these other empires that came afterwards. The seeds that were planted in Sahaba. Sahaba didn't go into any single land that today it's not Muslim. Today they're all majority still Muslim. Everywhere that the Sahaba went, it shows the barakah of the sincerity of their mission. The problem is the way that we run our institutions, the way we run our da'wah, there is no mission. It's more of a hobby and the principles don't reflect the values. Yes, you might say Islam is important, but it's number 7, 8, 9, 10 on the list. It keeps going down. 
So the way we approach it has to be different. If enough Muslims don't do this, the situation will remain the same. One of the best parts of Camp Sunnah is our environment, and often the brothers and sisters build their bonds through contemplation and reflection. We are expecting to tackle the, the issues we're facing as, as an ummah with dull minds, with dull, with with, uh, with a dull commitment, and with uh, with dull skills. So, what do we expect if, if we just keep on doing that? For example, uh, one of the uh, analogies that Dr. Sayed gave was a a competent a lumberjack would sharpen their axe for three hours to cut down a tree in, in an hour. Yeah. But then if they didn't know what they were doing, it, it would take 10 hours. It humbles you. It humbles you when you see people doing the extra and doing that, that extra step. Even when they could just rest, always looking for something to do, somewhere to serve. And subhanAllah, when you see people with that mentality where they're always not taking but giving and, and serving and doing things it makes you realize that how like you're not there yet you know and you need to compete and wallahi i found out that's the best way to come over your ego you can read as much as you want you know reflect as much as you want but like you know actions of brothers is, is very powerful especially because it shows you where you are and subhanallah it's like good competition is good and that's how the sahaba radiallahu umar every time he sees Abu Bakr, he just realizes where he are that, and I'm not there yet. I need to go more. I need to go more. Kind of line. That that was how their life was. Well, I think you can't have that competition if you don't have those companions. Exactly. If you don't have that comp that good company. I was just uh, getting dressed to go outside for our activity, and you know, I think one of the most tranquil moments I've had. Uh, was just being out here in the nature, in the beautiful creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the icing on the cake, I think, is when um, Abdurrahman, he walks by and he's just revising his Quran. Instead of, you know, Justin Bieber blaring in the background, ruining whatever experience you have, you have Quran, you have a brother reminding you to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that is just the icing on the cake. I, I don't, I, my soul just feels so nourished. I just, it's such a tranquil moment for me being at this camp. Um, it, it's, it's a feeling like no other. Ilm isn't only found in lectures. Each morning we return to the foundation of Islam by reciting and learning the Quran. The importance of understanding and reflecting on the Qur'an is the central component, not just reading and memorizing. And each morning, during Camp Sunnah, we have our daily tafsir on the selected surah for the camp. This year we learned and reflected on Surah Al-Fat, the victory. So we're told over here, this is not, once again, a thing that you just profess once every so often. Allah Jalla wa'ala says over here, تُسَبِّحُوا He didn't just say وَتُسَبِّحُوا تُسَبِّحُوهُ بُكْرَةً وَأَصِيلًا It's not enough to say it once or twice. Rather, you being a Muslim, it's not a matter of just one hour a day, two hours a day. It's a 24-7 duty upon you to magnify and glorify Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to worship Allah azza wa jal. So everything we do in the course of our lives should be in effect an act of worship or leading to an act of worship. You see, subhanAllah, when you look at the concept of ibadah, and this is kind of, the verse alludes to it indirectly, the concept of ibadah here is that uh, one perform every deed that is beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As Ibn Taymiyyah and other scholars have mentioned, that ibadah is every statement, every action uh, that you do, that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not only salah, not only the five pillars of Islam, but small subtle things that we overlook, smiling in the face of your brother, giving nasiha, a good word, giving comfort to your brother, being there. Likewise, taking part in general you know, uh, activities that would strengthen the bond of brotherhood. This is all, in, in essence, forms of ibadah, forms of worship, subhanAllah. 
So we're commanded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to maintain this ibadah all the time in our lives. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 11 he speaks of those who lag behind not the people who are now there in Mecca but rather those in Hudaybiyah rather those who lag behind and this is the beauty of our faith it's not exclusive to one person. Yeah, and when the Prophet ﷺ went with the intention of performing Umrah that year, the call was given to everyone who wants to perform Umrah, you can come and join us. Among those who, you know, with, did not go out and stayed back, lagged behind, were six Bedouin tribes. The majority of them stayed behind. The reason they lagged behind, as we can see over here, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says. سيقول لك المخلفون من الأعراب شغلتنا أموالنا وأهلنا. Why did you lag behind? Why didn't you join the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? Allah says that those who lag behind will tell you we were busied with our wealth and our families. يعني it is not a viable or sufficient reason to say that I have my family. I have my career, my business. This is not a reason for you to quit on da'wah. Whenever you have a chance to come forth to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you take that opportunity. Family and everything else, as we can see over here, is not a reason for which you can say that I can't do it because I'm busy with this. So what happened over here? When they lagged behind, giving these reasons... They said, Fastaghfirlana. That, you know, ask Allah to forgive us. Allah then exposes them here. So, outwardly, they've given reasons that may be somewhat plausible. They asked the Messenger of Allah وسلم, something very beautiful. Oh, Rasulullah, we were busy with this, so ask Allah to forgive us. Allah says here, Yaquluna bi alsinatihim. They profess with their tongues what is not in their hearts. Subhanallah. So Allah exposed them. And this shocked them. Because here, they had such weak faith that they did not realize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knew what was in their hearts. And this is all on account of the ignorance of who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is. When one is unaware of who Allah azza wa jal is, then definitely things like this may cross their mind that they can cheat their way out of a duty and then make a, a lame excuse afterwards saying that, you know what, I missed, it, uh, missed out on this because of this or that. Allah will forgive me in the end. And the other thing over here is that it's inappropriate for a Muslim to simply state that, you know what, I know Allah is ghafoor rahim, ghafoor rahim. And how often is it that we have, you know, brothers who and sisters who basically rely upon the verses of what we call wa'ad, the promises of Allah, the good things whereby you're giving forgiveness and mercy, they rely upon this so much so that they forget about the other side, that Allah shadidul iqab. In order for a Muslim to be a balanced individual, we have to bring both aspects into light. That as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ghafoor, is rahim, Allah likewise is shadidul iqab. So in this way, you would not you know, lose sight of what is important. You wouldn't think that, you know what, I can leave my salah, I can leave this and that because Allah is ghafoor rahim. 
So when you have both you know, the, these aspects in mind, it would balance us and we would then proceed in life in a proper way. Kamsunna always pairs knowledge with action. Every year, one of the most exciting moments are the excursions we go on. This year, we had the special opportunity to take a hike through the mountains and in the deep, lush forests in search of a hidden, shimmering waterfall. We're here at Camp Sunnah 2020. The pandemic can't stop us, be it online or offline. But we wanted to share these beautiful moments with you, dear brothers and sisters. And so I just wanted to pass the mic to my dear Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, brothers and sisters. What a scene, Allahu Akbar. How beautiful the nature behind me and around me is, Allahu Akbar. Now, I just want to say something about Kam Sunnah, subhanAllah, that really it touched my heart for the last year and this year as well, attending it, Allahu Akbar. And that is, it's not just a camp like you attend in Sea Brothers, and it goes beyond that. This camp is the embodiment of al-ilm wal-amal, subhanAllah, whereby you gain knowledge, you see it, mashallah, on the ground, you get into a routine that inshallah will continue on for the rest of your life, bi ta'ala. So it's a transformational camp, a chance for us all to improve, bi ta'ala. And here, as you can see behind me, Allahu Akbar, is one such lesson, at-tafakkur fi khalqillah. A thing that I've learned over here at Camp Sunnah myself and I'm grateful for, alhamdulillah. Allahumma lakal hamd. Allahumma lakal hamd wal minna. Wa jazakum Allahu khayran. Remember at Camp Sunnah, my dear brothers, whether you're online with us or whether you're here in the Rockies with us, you want to live by the haq, you want to die by the haq. And whenever life is stuck, make sure you turn into life haq, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Allah, this is the most beautiful view in my life. And you know, Allah subhanAllah, the biggest thing is not that. This is not even the best thing about the camp. You know, having the brothers together and subhanAllah, getting advice and, and, and tips and, and, and nasiha and ilm that is worth more than anything in this world. That's the actual true thing. And subhanAllah, it's, it's just a transforming camp where like subhanAllah, you, you get to see other brothers like you struggling like you, you know, and starting just all natural, no fakes. And subhanAllah, going through that journey together as brothers. And this is just a bonus, guys. Every single time I come back to this camp, I always feel like it's going to be the exact same thing. I always, I always feel like it's going to be the exact same experience. But the thing is, you know, we might be coming to this beautiful place and we might be enjoying each other's company. But the biggest thing is we, we make an effort to live as close to the sunnah as possible. And if you just look at the sunnah, like, you know, just here and there, if you just pick out, pick out some, uh, some, some uh, sunnah here and there, it's not that special. But when you, when you follow the, the complete way of life, you, you realize that it's a transformational like, experience. And you realize just how far your life is from it. SubhanAllah, we've just finished this amazing, beautiful 1.6 mile hike. SubhanAllah, so beautiful and this amazing view right at the end. And it has me thinking, SubhanAllah, what the, I think this, this hike just encapsulates what this camp is about. See, SubhanAllah, there's this vision uh, for us to, to, to reach this amazing end goal, unity, brotherhood, uh, leadership, being inspired by the Sunnah. But getting to this hike, SubhanAllah, came with its own challenges. We have to go across rivers a few times, get our feet wet, you know, get a little bit dirty, slide a little bit. Uh, and SubhanAllah, I feel like maybe I wouldn't have been able to do this on my own. But collectively, as a Jama'ah, I had these brothers pushing me forward. I had amazing examples. We weren't leaving anyone behind. We had everyone coming together. Sheikh was here. Uh, and SubhanAllah, together, collectively, uh, we're here. We've made it. We've made an incredible view. But again, SubhanAllah, I think we've got to embrace the struggle, embrace the challenges that come hand in hand with reaching our vision, inshallah. So uh, I'm just thinking about going back. Uh, embracing the struggles that are going to have to come along with uh, implementing the amazing lessons and reminders that I've gotten at this camp. SubhanAllah, Camp Sunnah 2020, man. This is, uh, what, 12 years for myself and alhamdulillah. Uh, I would say this has been uh, the year where uh, I have probably 
taking so much out of this camp and everything goes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless all the people behind the project, uh, allowing this to happen uh, and not uh, accepting any reason not to carry out this amazing camp, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow this camp to keep on going forever and ever and ever inshallah. Possibly the most entertaining portion of Camp Sunnah are the legendary evening sessions, the creative reminders, where the brothers and sisters take the knowledge and reflections they have learned to create halal skits, challenges and entertainment for all to enjoy. You want to know last Jummah, you know what happened? Mullah Saab came to give the Jummah khutbah. He parked his car in Imam position like normal. He come and he starts his khutbah. He's giving his khutbah in Alhamdulillah. And he's going, going, going. Then one man, big beard, he stand up. And he said, Ya Mullah, you have air freshener in your car. Haram. Haram. He say, and he say, you are of manhaj. He say you are of manhaj and he fighting. Mullah Sahib say, show me hadith. You show me hadith if you say this to me. He's turning red, big fight going on. And this man, you know, funniest part, what his name is? Abu Bakwas. <laughs> and he come and he, you know what he say? He say, he say very interesting hadith. I heard this hadith, but not like this before. He said hadith about camel and string. That you can't have camel with string. And he said this camel like God. Hold on, that was a, that was a camel? Yeah, he's talking hadith was camel, but no, no, Mullah Sahib drives Camry, Toyota Camry. 93, good model. A core part of Camp Sunnah is always Dr. Sayed's practical examples from our history and connecting us to our past to give us solutions for our da'wah in real life. In the final lecture of Camp Sunnah, Dr. Sayed tells us the story of Sheikh Said Nursi, showing us the power of our faith when we take this work as a real mission in life, not as just a passing interest. Alhamdulillah. Uh, we find ourselves uh, in a land, in a situation where we have the luxury to practice our deen and to promote our deen, to work hard, to study, to meet each other, to collaborate, to dress how we, how we like. So we have this uh, freedom and opportunity to do all of these things. Alhamdulillah. Yet, many countries that are considered Muslim countries, you may not have a lot of these freedoms. And I don't think there's more of a sad example than uh, Turkey at the turn of the 20th century. Turkey witnessed World War I, basically suffered the losing end of the stick. Uh, you had... Uh, Mustafa Kemal uh, come in and completely try to change the value system and fabric of society. Policies like eliminating the Adhan in Arabic and take away the Arabic and Persian script within their language. The Ottoman Empire was representative of the Islamic Empire. It was representative of the Khilafah. They destroyed and banned the printing of Arabic books. So books in Arabi, they recycled it, they destroyed it, they tried to eliminate a lot of the Islamic clothing and style that they had. The hijab for women, Muslim men uh, were not allowed to wear the imamah in public. One of the defining characteristics of Muslims was the imamah. Imagine living in a time like this, you've been defeated by the British and Greeks, you've lost vast, huge amounts of territory, you've had a lot of people betray the state, the Ottoman Empire, the history, the legacy within it. So you had people working against the empire within itself, right? And you have, so internally there's chaos, uh, externally there's people just breaking this, this empire apart. And the people now are, their, their identity is being completely taken away from them. This time, any time like this, um, a special time, a time where you're going through these situations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never leaves us without any hope. And this ray of hope 
came from a man who was known as the wonderment of his time. This is the nickname he was given. This man was given the nickname, the title, Badiyo Zaman, Sheikh Saeed Nursi. Now, he witnessed all of these changes, all this volatility, the soul of Turkey being taken away from his country. Now, he was known to be bright from a very young age. He had a very good memory. He could argue with scholars, especially like the atheists. He would confront the atheists. At the age of 15, he would be overturning their arguments. And people started actually attending his haraqat when he was 18 years old. And for 15 years, uh, he spread ilm. One time, he saw a newspaper clipping uh, which quoted the British Prime Minister Gladstone. Okay? And the British Prime Minister, he said, and he had a Quran with him. He says, as long as the Egyptians have this book, we will not be able to subdue them. So as long as the Quran is preserved, we will not be able to defeat them. So when he heard that, when he, that actually one of, it was one of the main events in his life that he witnessed that really affected him. And he made a commitment that he was going to fight for the Qur'an. He actually wanted now the Qur'an to be preserved. He wanted the Qur'an to be promoted. But he was arrested in 1909. Uh, he was captured with some of his followers and 19 of the people of that party were executed. And then they passed the death sentence on another 15 of his followers. So he'd be in the courtroom and they're sentencing all these people to death. And it says, do you want, do you also want the implementation of the Sharia? Because they're working to establish the Sharia because you have all these secular European laws now supplanting all these Islamic laws that you've had. And so he asks them, do you want that? And so this is his response. And I'm going to quote to you verbatim some of his responses in the courtroom. So he says, if I were endowed with a thousand lives, I would gladly sacrifice them all for the cause of Islam. Anything foreign to Islam is not acceptable to me. Actually, I am waiting at the barzakh for the guy that will take me to the akhirah. I am ready for the journey to the other world to join my companions who have escaped your tyranny through the gallows. I am eager and impatient to see the Akhira, just as in the state of mind of a rustic villager who has all along been hearing about the comfort and luxury and magnificence of the, of the city of Istanbul and could not see it, then you have an idea of my impatience to reach the Akhira. I'm accused of sharply criticizing the free thinkers and their heretic journalists. Even now I say that just as the garments of a delinquent, so the garments, the clothes of a criminal, do not suit a respectable gentleman, so also the culture and way of life of Europe do not suit the people of Istanbul. Glory to Allah and victory to Islam. Like, look at the izzah that he says. And because there was like a loud pro protest and because you know, many people uh, were upset that he was in, in, imprisoned and so forth, uh, they, uh, they ended up actually releasing him. So again, this shows us that it is Allah SWT that controls life and death, even though they may feel that they have this power. So during this time, shortly thereafter, actually, World War I broke out. Okay? And his area where he's from, it was attacked by the Russians. And so he actually joined the Turkish army to defend his land. Uh, he had a, a great impact on the soldiers. He would deliver ma'udah, he would give lectures, he would give khutb to them, he would teach them the Qur'an, he would exhort them to read and, and learn the Qur'an and connect with the Qur'an. And he also fought. What ended up happening is that uh, he was, along with 3,000 uh, fighters, trying to defend uh, his, this, uh, his village, his area, 
and they, they, were, they were giving huge losses to the Russian army, but uh, he ended up getting captured. So he gets captured. And subhanAllah, he spends two years in a Siberian prison. Now, Sheikh Said Norsi, uh, he was known before, especially amongst religious communities, but now he becomes a war hero. So when he comes back, he sees a British and Greeks have a big presence in Istanbul at that time. And they're sowing a lot of sedition, division amongst the politicians, many of the scholars there, many of the statesmen there. And he, he becomes upset with this, so he writes a book, Al-Khutawat al-Set, which uh, attempted to expose a lot of the schemes of the British and the Greeks. Now, the British were very angered with this, and they you know, tried to actually get politicians, judges, to sentence him to death. But, you know, alhamdulillah, with the resistance of the people, uh, he was pardoned and he was released. He was offered the position by Mustafa Kemal to be, you know, post of a preacher in Ankara and East Anatolia. And they said they would give him a big salary in a modern villa. Sheikh Said Norsi was a person who had a lot of, you know, reliance on Allah SWT and a lot of this independence. You know, like we sometimes think that material stuff give you strength. We are strong through things. That actually makes you weaker. He rejected all of that. And he didn't, he, did, he didn't just do this once. Like he was so respected and loved. Like for example, something simple. His student would come, sew him some socks, wool socks. You know, in parts of Turkey gets cold in the winter. He says, I want you to wear these for me. You wear them. I want you to ask yourselves something, my, my dear brothers. Was this man, his dawah, was it a mission or was it a hobby? And they chose to exile him in Barla for eight and a half years. So he was like in this mountainous place. He was under house arrest and no one could communicate with him at that time. Now, I'm going to tell you something. That probably has been one of the most impactful things in the revival of Islam in Turkey, where people to, to this day benefit from it and they credit it for the Islamic revival in Turkey. So he writes a book called Rasail Nur, so Message of Light. So Messages of Light, essentially. This book... Okay, so it has like, um, you know, reflections, ayat of Qur'an in it, reflections, uh, reminders, you know, things like that. This book was copied by hand during his time, 600,000 to 700,000 copies. They started getting it distributed all across Turkey. People get these copies of this book. And then they would copy out the whole book with hand, by hand. And it caused a resurgence of like Islam and uh, you know, turning to the Qur'an in the Tur Turkish population. It just spread like wildfire. Like everybody started like taking this book, copying it, uh, and, and passing, uh, passing it along. Now, of these lonely years, of these years of suffering... See what Badiou Zaman says. Through the suffering of exile and imprisonment and solitary confinement, I was mercifully directed to meditate on the truth of the Qur'an in a state of grace. You see his response? All this exile and imprisonment, this is what he's saying. So look at what some of the things that he says when he's charged in court. He says, we are not followers of any mere sect, but we are followers of the truth. Our leader is the Qur'an. Our guide is the Prophet ﷺ. And our law is the sacred Sharia. We have no organization, nor are we engaged in any political activity. Our Risale-i-Nur is the school of belief and faith. 
This school has no buildings, but millions have accepted its message without coercion. And then he says, is it not disgraceful that the Freemasons should be allowed to denounce Islam and to encourage drinking, gambling, and adultery as part of the official campaign to popularize European culture, while I and my companions should be debarred from spreading the message of the Qur'an and serving the cause of Allah? He says, furthermore, None of my followers have ever been guilty of participating in any public disorder. None of them have ever violated the law of the land. How then is it possible for such a school established on the hearts of so many Turkish people ever to be closed down? You say what I do is not sanctioned by the government, that there is a department for such work, and that I should obtain a license from the government for the same? Do you take a license to obey Allah? Could you stop death by closing down the graveyards for eternity? Those are words of a man who has izza, a man who has self-respect, or a man who is on a mission. And again, some years later, he was in court. And he addresses the court. So again, he's always being brought in and harassed. Does anybody suppose that I am working for a selfish purpose? Here I am almost 90 years old. So at this time, he's almost 90 years old. With one foot in the grave. I have no money. I own no property. What could I know of mundane pleasures having lived all my life on the battlefields, in the prisoner of war camps? in exile, spending my time in jails, being tried by one court after another, exiled from one city to another like a vagabond and forbidden the normal contacts of family and friends. Were I not Muslim firm in faith, surely I would have preferred death to such a life. Thirty years ago when I was a member of Dar al-Hikmah, my friend Sayyid Salahuddin Pasha, told me uh, that the committee, this, uh, the, the Young Turks, had, dis, uh, had decided to execute me because Turkey will not turn to atheism so long as I lived. And I replied, the predestined moment of my death is fixed by Allah and is unchangeable. In the last 30 to 40 years, Every kind of conspiracy against me has been tried to get rid of me. During my imprisonment, uh, and they say, uh, may Allah improve them, I improve my situation by writing Risala Nur. I have saved more than half a million Turks from suffering the torments of eternal punishment in the Akhira. Therefore, may a thousand thanks be for Allah, the Omnipotent. I thus sacrifice myself for the belief of, of my people. I am neither fond of paradise, nor do I fear hell. In, if the Qur'an had no followers on earth, I would suffer torments of misery even in paradise, while if I could only see the faith of Turkey in security, I would feel joy while my body was burnt in hell. He says that there have been no less than 19 attempts on my life to poison me. So when he would be in prison, they would give him poison. They would try to put poison in his food. 19 times. And he would eat, you know, there were times he would just eat grass. He wouldn't trust the food that they were giving him. He was very simple. The way that, you know, he would be able to survive or he conducted himself. And they tried to enrage me through constant provocation and surveillance. But suddenly Allah enlightened my heart that instead of growing angry, I should pity my oppressors, who will in the very near future be subjected to eternal torture in hell 1,000 times worse than mine on earth. And then my revenge would be satisfied. Subhanallah. He had no real home, no real base. And they would kick him out from city to city. 
And one day, uh, he tried to uh, have some rest. So he booked a room in Orfa. Okay? And then the governor of that area didn't want him to stay. He said, get him out, get him out. And the owner of the hotel said, you know, how can I ask him to leave? Like, get the sheikh to leave? Like, he's rented the room. He's like, no, you have to have him leave. Two days later, the sheikh died. Now, when he died, what they told the brother of uh, Sheikh Said Nursi, Abdul Majid Nursi, they told him, uh, you need uh, to, because he was buried. So he, he died in Orfa, he was buried. And they said, you need to dig him up and bury him somewhere else. Not even in death can he escape people chasing him out of these cities. So they brought the ambulance. He said, you need to find him, bury him in an undisclosed. They had to bury him in an undisclosed location where no one could know where he's buried. So I want you to look at his life. He wasn't noble. He wasn't rich. Uh, he didn't get uh, married. He couldn't expose a wife and family to these conditions. And what they would do if you have a wife and children they would torture the wife and children, and so he didn't want to make himself vulnerable to that. You know, when one time he was in prison, 126 of his students followed him in, in the prison, so they can be imprisoned with him. This is the type of love Allah SWT put in the hearts of people for him. That when he died in 1960, you could say that he had one million followers in Turkey. One million followers of Sheikh Said Nursi. And uh, we saw now, think about the time he came in. He came into a time where you had virtually no sign or sound of deen in the Turkish parliament. Now, the wife of the prime minister and president wears hijab. Members of parliament... They, have, they wear hijab. The wife of the head of parliament wears hijab. Subhanallah. Look at how this man overcame these trials and tribulations. Like many Turkish people actually credit him to maintain like the, the, the torch of Islam, like the light of Islam to keep it burning, was his efforts and his example, and the fact that he was so uncompromising, and that he would write, and he would fight, and he would be restrain himself, and he would be, like he became apolitical, like all of these things, what could you call it besides Sabrun Jamila? That beautiful patience. Like, we want this victory right away. Did he see the Khilafah come in his time? Did he suffer a lot? Did he suffer in Siberian prisons? Did he see his companions get executed? Did he see the, the things that he held so much dear just be stolen away and just taken from his, his homeland? He saw all of these things and subhanAllah we put in a few months, a few years of effort and we don't get results and we give up. Because we're not on a mission. Beautiful. That patience is so beautiful but because you look on that person, that slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and that slave of Allah SWT sees and feels and experiences so much trial and tribulation and yet has rida, he has this, this uh, being pleased with Allah SWT. And it's beautiful because this, this slave of Allah does not complain. This slave of Allah is not deterred. And it's all in something that he cannot see. So when you take a step back and you look at this wonderment of your time, this badiyo zaman, only a sincere man can produce something like this, Rasa'i Nur, that saves millions of people, that guides, that helps elevate millions of people. Only a sincere person like that, you see the barakah in this. That you're seeing the effects afterwards. That gives you hope. This is a hujjah, this is an evidence of our times. A man like this is an example that yes, in modern history, 
We're not even talking about Sahabi here. In modern history, there are people on a mission willing to give everything for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they will not give up. And they will not quit. And they have hope in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's a different mindset. Allah never withholds His mercy. We are the ones that withhold. And that's why we don't get the Nusra. That's why we don't see the great Fat. But if we understand that and if we can take lessons from a life like Badiyah Zaman, then maybe we can attain a wonderment in our time. Yes, at the beginning of the 20th century, when everything seemed to be lost, there was a man who stood up against that tyrannical rule that tried to erase, erase Islam in that country. That was the goal, to completely erase it. So you see on your backs, right, you said move the rock. But we need sabrun jamila. Sabrun jamila. We need this beautiful patience. In a year everyone wants to see come to an end, this was one of the best years for Kamsunna. It showed the resiliency and the ability of Kamsunna to continue despite the odds and became an opportunity for those involved to test their sincerity and efforts. It was an optimistic sign of what is to come from Kamsunna to the leaders it produces and the Dawah in general. Jazakallahu khair.